Welcome to the OTP. Mike Keith, along with A.B. Wells once again. Welcome back. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm doing just fine. Glad to have you here. By the way, in the course of this program, you may hear progress. And what I mean by that is we are getting a new studio at St. Thomas Sports Park. They are building a radio and television studio downstairs. The only issue is they're working on it right now. Yep. So occasionally you'll hear a hammer or somebody yelling, hey, Lou, bring me some wire or something. What year are we building this studio? I don't know. In? There may be wire. But anyway, the point is, if you hear a strange noise in the background, we're not going to reference it every time. Just know. Yes. It's the price of progress on the OTP. And we're very excited about it. And we're very, I'll take the loud. And we're very excited about our guest. Our guest is Dr. Alan Sills, the NFL's first full-time chief medical officer. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right. That's pretty good. The first full-time chief medical officer. What an honor. Well, thank you. I'm uh, very honored to be in the position. Was happy to have the chance to serve. All right. Let me give your background. Dr. Sills is a neurosurgeon and sports physician, a part of Vanderbilt University's Medical Center, where he serves as a professor of neurological surgery, orthopedic surgery and rehabilitation, and the founder and co-director of the Vanderbilt Sports Concussion Center. So, What I wonder is, you're a local guy for us, but for the NFL, obviously, you're the chief medical officer. So how did it happen? How did you go from your role working in the orbit of the NFL to becoming the chief medical officer? Well, I've been working in sports for over 20 years, as you mentioned, Mike, and I've had the the pleasure to work at several different levels, uh, all the way from high school through college and then in several different professional sports. And starting in 2013, Uh, The NFL started their unaffiliated neurotrauma consultant program where they have um, neurological specialists on the sideline on Sundays at the games. And so I started serving for that locally here with the Titans, along with a couple of my colleagues from Vanderbilt. And through that work, I met some of the folks for the NFL. We also connected through some international sports work I've done. I've been part of the International Equestrian Federation on their medical side. And so we would see some of the NFL personnel at meetings. And when the uh, NFL decided to hire a chief medical officer, they contacted me and asked me if I'd be interested. And so I started that process of talking with them about that role. So what are some of the goals that you have as the NFL's chief medical officer? We like to talk about three major areas of emphasis for us. First and foremost is excellence in player patient care. Everything we do focuses around giving the very best care to our world-class athletes throughout all the spectrum of their career. And that, as I like to say, is our true north. We want to be excellent across the board in doing that. Our second pillar is research and innovation. We want to participate and support research that helps us discover new knowledge to make the game safer and also look at the products and services that may be coming to bear that we think can affect football, not only in the NFL, but at all levels and across all sports. Our third area is education and advocacy. We think we have a great opportunity to use the platform and the visibility of the NFL to help educate about changes in safety and ways that we can improve sports, again, at all levels, and also to advocate for those changes that we think will help uh, both, again, at a youth, college, high school level uh, throughout. So what does a week look like for you? And then on the same token, what does a Sunday look like for you? It must be pretty (laughs) wild and crazy. Sunday's definitely our busiest day during the season. So uh, let's start there. So 
Uh, on a Sunday, some Sundays I'm in New York at our command center there. Uh, some Sundays I'll be at a, at a game. Some Sundays I'll be here in Nashville. But I'm sort of on call for the whole league uh, to our team medical staffs and to our uh, league officials and our personnel to help troubleshoot any things that may be going on. Um, I do travel to a lot of games. Uh, I tend to go to a lot of games on Mondays and Thursdays because we only have one game going on on those game days. And so I, I don't uh, obviously need to stay in touch with everyone else on those days. So um, that's how game day plays out. And during the course of a typical week, I'm in New York, usually some of that week where our headquarters are. I'm also on the road a good bit visiting our clubs, getting to meet our team medical staffs and our, our personnel. Uh, meeting with our research partners, going to medical meetings, and then I still do a little bit of doctoring at Vanderbilt. I still uh, actually see patients and still do some surgery a couple of days a month as well. So um, each week looks a little different depending on what's going on. I want to ask you, too, about your credibility with football people. And what I mean by that is for anybody who works in the NFL who is not a player or a coach, you have to sort of establish a credibility with the players and the coaches and the personnel folks in order for them to be able to trust that you have the game's best interest at heart. For you, does that credibility come from the fact that you have worked so much with other sports and, it, and it's clear that you love sports just like, frankly, any sports fan? I think that's a big part of it, Mike, because I have been around football, again, at all levels for, for over um, 30 years. In fact, really almost my whole life. Uh, I grew up in a college town and went to college football games every weekend. But once I got into medicine, I started covering and, and serving as a team consultant for a number of different college and university teams and, and was fortunate enough to meet a lot of folks through that role. And then having served in several other professional sports, I've been in the NBA as a team physician. I've been in the NHL as a team physician. I, I do think it helps that. But uh, but. Definitely would count myself as a sports fan and someone who loves lots of different sports and certainly football. Combining that love with your medical background and the fact that you like research, all of that fits together. And I want to ask you about something that I've read about that fascinates me, and that's the GE NFL Head Health, I guess they call it, initiative. Right. It's, it's fascinating. It, it's fascinating the money that is being spent in trying to take care of the players come up with a lot of technological advances, and advance the game. Can you explain what that initiative is all about? Sure. Well, it's part of our overall research program that I referenced earlier. And one of the things that I didn't know before I got in this role is just how heavily invested the NFL has been in research. Uh, over the past five or six years, the league has spent over $200 million on a variety of different research projects. Um, and again, not all of that's just around concussion. It encompasses the whole spectrum of player experience. But I think it's a great point of pride for the league, and it's something that's clearly helping a lot of different medical research. Specific to GE, there have been several challenges that have occurred through the sponsorship with GE. Some of those have looked at better ways to image the brain and how we can study the brain in concussion and other conditions. Some of those have looked more around other diagnostic tests, but it's just part of this overall portfolio where the league has been really focusing on the research that's going to help us understand the conditions that affect players, again, across the whole of their experience. Now, we know that they've done a lot of research on helmets and how to make them safer, mm -hmm. but they're also doing research on things that you'd never think of, like things like shoes and things. Is that correct? It is. Uh, we've got a $60 million project called the Engineering Roadmap that's really focused around protective equipment, head to toe. So helmets were the first place it was started. And our engineers um, that we work with in that project actually came out of the automotive safety industry. And so they've taken that same approach of how can we design a safer car really from scratch, materials, engineering, the way we put it all together. 
And they've used that to, to innovate around the helmet, trying to spur the manufacturers and people in that space to, to innovate around how helmets are designed and, and the materials and so forth. They've also taken that approach to the other end of the body now in the feet. And they found some fascinating data, which is about half of the players in the NFL did not wear the right size or style shoe. And that has a substantial correlation with injury, because when you're not in the right shoe, the forces and the speed that these guys put on the, the shoe can really lead to a lot of different injuries with the foot, the ankle, and even further up the chain. And lower extremity or leg injuries are still the number one time loss injury in the league. Guys miss more time for those than any other reason. So our engineers found this out. They started testing and innovating around shoes and cleat design. They worked with the manufacturers to improve the design. And they uh, worked with Hewlett Packard to design a scanner project that uh, is doing a 3D foot scan of every player in the league so that your unique foot size and shape is scanned. That then goes into an algorithm and it spits out and says, for the type of shoe you like to wear, the brand you like to wear, here are the right model choices for you. And we've got that across all 32 clubs now. And so basically every player is going to get custom-made shoes, if you will, for each foot and for each surface, artificial surface and natural surface. We feel very confident that's going to have a substantial increased uh, safety margin for, for a lot of these injuries. Dr. Sills, how do you keep up with all of the research and technology that's going on right now? Because the brain stuff, the foot stuff, all, all of these studies, how do you, how do you follow it all? <laughs> Well, it's impossible for one person to do. We have a whole team that works on these projects. It's certainly not just me. We have a large health and safety staff. And as I mentioned before, we have consultants and, and engineers that work with us, uh, as well as our medical experts. We engage a lot of ex medical experts around the country on our various committees, and, and they really help us manage all this. It's way too big a job for any one person. Let's talk about the evolution of the game as far as rules. And if, if you go back, this is the 150th season of football coming up from when it started when Rutgers played Princeton on November 6th, 1869. So we've been doing this a long time. And I was reading something just recently about how they outlawed the flying wedge mm -hmm. back in those days because, Amy, the way they stopped the flying wedge with a guy coming forward is one of the defensive players punched a guy in the jaw. It's that a, would work. That would work. Yeah. So there was blood not, everywhere. Not great on the health and safety not side. Not really yeah. great no. on the health and safety <laughs> side. Teddy Roosevelt not thrilled with where the game was in the early, early 20th century. So – the pattern of rule changes throughout the game, it's been consistent. And in recent years, no more leaping. Uh, defenseless receivers taken care of. Basically, the crackback block is out of the game, except for some very minor exceptions. And then in March, a big rule came forward at the league meetings. And I went back and I looked at exactly what the, the language of the rule is, so I'm just going to read it. It is a foul if a player lowers his head to initiate and make contact with his helmet against an opponent. It's a big deal. It was a big deal throughout the league, a lot of reaction from really everywhere. Can you take us through, Dr. Sills, what led to this development and this rule being put on the books starting in 2018? Sure, and I think first to echo something you mentioned, Mike, it the evolution of rules in football as a, as a function of safety has gone on throughout the course of the game, so this is nothing new. What we have now at our disposal is a whole lot more technology and resources to understand these injuries. And so when we looked at our concussion numbers over the past several years, in 2017, we had an all-time high of concussions diagnosed in the NFL, 291. That includes preseason, regular season, and, and postseason games and practices. And some people have said, isn't that because we're better at diagnosing them? Isn't everyone more aware? Aren't players reporting more? And I think the answers to all of those questions are yes. But still, we don't want to stop there and say that's okay. 
So as we went back to the drawing board and said, what can we do to drive that number down, to reduce the number of concussions, we started looking at the triggers, the factors that are really producing them. And our engineers that we worked with did a video review of every concussion in the league for the last three years. They didn't just look at one angle. They looked at every angle. They looked at all the impact velocities. And they noticed this disturbing pattern that when players lowered their head and initiated contact with their head, they put themselves at a much higher risk of injury and their opponent at a much higher risk of injury. And we saw that behavior happening more frequently. Three seasons ago, it was about one out of every three concussions caused by helmet to helmet. In 2017, it was about one out of two. So despite all our awareness, that behavior, that style of play was becoming more common. So as we went in and looked at all that data and reviewed much of that video, we put a presentation together that we took to the competition committee. The competition committee is who makes the rules of the game for the NFL. It's composed of some coaches, some team owners, and, and other executives in the league. And we just showed them that data. We laid it out and showed them the videos and showed them the instance of how this was happening. And everyone around the room said, we got to change this, meaning this behavior of guys lowering their head and initiating contact with their helmet is so risky and so dangerous, we feel it needs to come out of the game. And that was really the impetus around the rule change. And I have to tell you, as, as sort of an insider insight, we presented that to the entire ownership and all the head coaches in the league. And there was uniform agreement all the head coaches that this is a part of the game that they didn't want to see, that they didn't feel should be taught, and they wanted to get out of the game. So that was obviously gratifying to me as someone who cares deeply about these issues, but I think it shows the breadth of support for the type of change that we're trying to do here. Did that amount of support surprise you at all? Did you expect to have a little pushback? You know, I guess you don't know what to expect when you go in, but, but again, we went in just with data. We're not the football experts. We're the medical folks. And so we went in and said, here's what we're noticing, and here's where we think there's an opportunity to really make a significant impact on safety. And so it was very gratifying to see them embrace that very quickly, um, and as I said, very much across the board. We also talked about two other pillars that we're using this year to try to drive down concussions. One is to reduce the number of preseason practice concussions. We had a little bit of an uptick last year, so we're sharing data with clubs about how they practice and when those occur. And secondly, to try to get players in better performing helmets. You may have heard some some uh, news recently about being certain helmets being prohibited. That comes out of our testing where we test all the helmets and find that some perform much better than others in terms of protection. And I'm assuming that the players in the players' union are also a pretty big part in these discussions? Incredibly important point, Amy. We have active participation together so that the Players Association, their engineers, and our engineers are working together on that. I want to ask you, too, about some of the people saying, okay, this is going to be ejections, penalties, left and right, because this is going to be called. I mean, I don't know that it's criticism as much as it just is concern. What do you think the league's feelings are on that from the medical side and the football side? Well, I think on the medical side, we, we try to leave the enforcement to the folks that are experts in that area. Sure. And so I, I think that they'll do a good job on that. We did have a recent summit meeting last week in New York where we brought in a lot of head coaches, including Coach Vrabel, a number of former players and legends of the game and a number of other stakeholders to, to talk about that issue, how it's going to be officiated. Here's one thing I'd say. Folks are going to need to be a little patient. Okay, It's not going to be perfect right at the get-go. All changes are hard, um, just like when we put in protections around defenseless receivers and other things. There is a learning curve for everyone, officials, players, coaches. But there's clear commitment to making this type of change and getting it right, and I think you'll see us moving in that direction. And for what the long-term gain is, some short-term pain, may, it'll be worth it. 
That's right, and no one's trying to change uh, the essence of the game. We certainly understand there's always going to be collisions, but it's a matter of how those collisions occur and doing it in the safest manner possible. And again, getting out of the game these behaviors that, that have a much, much higher risk of injury. Is it going to be hard to teach professional players some of these changes? You know, again, I'd have to talk with the coaching staffs. I know that there was a lot of discussion about that point. They're, the league is making videos around that issue of how to teach this. But I think you raise a larger point, which is we're sharing this same information with other levels of play, including the NCAA and others, because we do realize that players learn habits earlier on and they become successful with certain techniques. And it is sometimes harder for us to change later in our careers. Um, so we think it is going to be an important part of this change to make sure that we adopt it at other levels, and, and hopefully the other levels will follow the NFL. But yeah. whether they do or don't, we think it's the right thing for us. So your son, wrapping up high school uh, right now, a high school athlete, going to go on to be a college baseball player. For you, does it make it even more important that these things happen and will trickle down and be taught to not only our college players, our high school players, our middle school players, our grass cutter players, based on the fact that you, you have a kid that would have been directly impacted by this. Sure. I think we recognize and we own the fact that we have a leadership role, we being the NFL, and that people look to us for these kinds of innovations. And, and I think that's part of what excites me about my job is that we can take all this evidence that we have at our, at our fingertips and put together uh, in new knowledge and advancements that can then impact the game for other levels of play. You know, I still stand on the high school sidelines on Friday night at football games and, and love doing that. And so I have a real passion for making sure that we're trying to lead and, and, and to share that knowledge with other levels of play so that it, the game can become as safe as it can be at every level. Where do you think we are on the kickoff at this point from a safety standpoint? Well, we've taken some very aggressive steps to try to improve that play because it had the highest rate of injury of any play, not just for concussion, but for all injuries. And really, that's a function of space and speed. You've got enormous people traveling at a high rate of speed over large distances and with high energy collisions. So uh, there's been a very active effort, as you know, this offseason to look at that play and think about how it could be restructured in an attempt to reduce those injury rates. Uh, again, we had a summit in New York last week, brought in a lot of special teams coaches, again, former players, current coaches to look at that. And so there's a very collaborative effort across the league to say, we all want to see that injury rate go down, try to save that play if we can. How could we maybe re-engineer some of the rules around it to accomplish those objectives? And the great thing about our position is we're going to know the answer. At the end of the season, we'll have the data to know whether those changes did what we wanted them to or whether we've got to go in a different direction. For you as a medical professional, are there certain aspects of the game that you watch and you just kind of clench your fists a little bit wondering, is there something that give, makes you nervous? Well, I think... You, you want the game to be as safe as it can be, and you, you recognize that injury can occur to anyone at any sport at any level. Um, in my practice, I see people injured in a whole variety of ways, people coming in with golf balls hitting them in the head and causing uh, concussions on the golf course and cheerleaders that fall and various things. So you know that participating in sports, there's always some risk of injury. Our, our, our job and our goal is to drive that risk down as low as we possibly can. And what we're gifted with in the NFL is tremendous medical personnel. We have great physicians and athletic trainers who work on our sidelines. Our independent personnel that come in in game day are very devoted and very attentive to their tasks. So I'm very proud of the record of achievement we've done in this area. And I think the game is in a far better place with health and safety today than it was five or 10 years ago and certainly 20 or 30 years ago. The NFL has been this country's number one sport since the early 1980s, according to the Harris Poll year after year after year. And so when injuries take place in the NFL, whether it's concussions or ACLs or whatever, it gets tremendous attention. But the point is, 
these injuries occur in other sports and maybe don't get the attention that they probably should, and yet some of the things being learned in football are helping with these other sports and with injury. Absolutely correct, Mike, and, and I think that's, again, part of our mission on that, on that education and advocacy piece that I spoke about earlier is to make sure we share our learnings to, to improve safety in those sports as well. Take our helmet work, for example. There are other sports that wear helmets that we think can benefit from some of the things we're learning. Certainly the cleat work that we talked about before and the footwear, huge implications for a lot of different sports. So I think that is one of our unique opportunities with the NFL to, to, to make those advances into other sports. You partner with a lot of people, the NFL does, what about the partnership with the military and some of what's going on? Can you talk about that just a little bit? Sure. Obviously, traumatic brain injury is a huge issue in the military as well. And so we are co-sponsoring some research that the military is doing with the NCAA. It's called the um, CARE Consortium. And so it's a, it's a consortium between a number of NCAA Division I schools and the service academies as well as the military looking at the longitudinal effects of, of various aspects of head trauma, including concussion. Additionally, we engage with their experts regularly because we do have a tremendous amount of overlap with a lot of injuries, not just with head injuries. But um, brain injury is brain injury, no matter what the etiology of it is. And while there's some nuances to each uh, situation, there's a lot to be learned from each other in collaboration there. We've talked a lot about kids and how these habits start so early. Mm -hmm. What age do you feel is an appropriate age for kids to start playing contact sports? I think that we're still waiting for the evidence to tell us the answers to that. Um, what I think we have to always look at, anytime we look at participation in a sport, you look at the risks and the benefits. And we all know there are tremendous benefits to team sports. There's a lot of personal development, there's leadership, there's camaraderie. So I, my goal is to see kids participate in team sports, whatever those may be, whether they're football, it could be flag football, rookie tackle, full tackle, it can be baseball, lacrosse, soccer. We just want kids to be active. Uh, whatever the science ends up telling us, that's where we're going to go. And I think this is an area of very active research that we have to continue uh, to pursue. But, but the great thing is today, kids and parents have a lot of choices. Again, with flag football leagues, with seven on seven, we know that's growing in an explosive way, particularly here in Middle Tennessee. So I'm pleased that there are a lot of options out there uh, for whatever team sport that people are attracted to. And I just hope people will stay active in those team sports. Website that I was looking at today, PlaySmartPlaySafe.com, I think is an excellent resource for teaching. And the league is trying to put a lot of those things out there to get the messages and the options across. We definitely are. We've got a lot of resources on PlaySmartPlaySafe.com. We encourage people to, to look at it. One of them, for example, is our game day concussion protocol. So you can look on there and see the checklist that's followed on game day by our experts. I encourage people to use it. I encourage leagues to to investigate it and consider adopting it for their use because it's based out of the best science that we have. Our medical experts get together and, and put that together every year. And so that's our point in putting it on the website is so it can be as widely available as possible. We also published our concussion protocol last year in a medical journal. First time any pro sports league has ever done that. But again, we wanted to get it out there for medical professionals so they know exactly what we're doing, why we're doing it, and what the resources are around that. And again, we hope that'll be used at all levels. Dr. Sills, the fact that you're talking with us that you're the NFL's chief medical officer and that you do interviews, that you, you make commentary. How important is it that you feel like knocking down some of the walls, some of the myths, and getting the information out there is vital to what you're trying to, to get accomplished for the players, for the NFL, and for athletes everywhere? Well, it's very important to me. I will share with you, when I started to be interviewed for the job, I had questions. I had skepticism because you hear a lot about what the NFL is and is not about. And so I went in and 
wanted to hear from the league officials, are we really serious about this? Do we really want to get this right? And I was very pleased to hear an absolute commitment to advancing science and to making this as safe as we can possibly be. That was the message I heard from the commissioner through everyone else. And I found that to be true in my year with the league. And so I think we are in a new era where we're trying to be as open and transparent about everything as we can. We know we still have work to do. We know we don't always get it right, just like any aspect of medicine, but we try to own up where our shortcomings are and address those. And we really want people to understand how committed we are to improving health and safety across the league. We've talked a lot about current players. What about the league's commitment to former players? Tell us a little bit about that. So we do have an active division within our league that works with former players, of course, again, in conjunction with the Players Association, which has a lot of resources there as well. And so we really want to not only stay engaged with those players, but try to serve them and help them with their health needs. Uh, the Players Association is sponsoring a very large longitudinal study of former players in conjunction with Harvard University that's going to help us understand and, and better appreciate some of the aspects of their experience. So. Uh, that's a study that's ongoing and that, that we work together with the Players Association in trying to make sure we're all informed about what's happening there. So former players are certainly important to us, just like they are even if they haven't played in the NFL. I think studying groups of former players that played in high school or in youth leagues is also very important for us. You touched on something I think is, is really important. It's the way that players feel like they can speak up now. Uh, years ago, you got your bell rung, mm -hmm. as everybody called it. You were taught don't say anything. I got to stay in the game. Today, players are being much more honest with the, their medical people, with their training staff. That's a big deal. It is, and it's a very positive change. Certainly, we know that, that playing through discomfort is a part of all sports, and it's a culture and athletes that learn to do that. But we try to make a very sharp distinction about the brain, that you can't play through an injury with your brain. And we are seeing major positive changes in that area. Just last year, almost half of our concussion evaluations had some component of self-report, meaning either the player themselves or a teammate or a coach or someone came up and said, hey, we need to go check out Mike. And we think that was an all-time high, that percentage, and we think that's a very positive change. It reflects the fact that players are taking this seriously and that education is working in that area, and, and we hope that trend continues. What is it about your job that keeps you up at night? <laughs> <laughs> that's a great question. Um, I think it's just trying to um, make sure that, that we um, that we continue our quest for getting better in every, every area. Um, I mentioned this year that we had this concussion reduction strategy. I'm hopeful that in future years we're looking at an ACL reduction strategy or an ankle injury reduction strategy and, you know, those efforts to try to continue to get better in, in areas where we know we're having injuries and we hope that we can, can, can make a positive impact. So I'm excited about that, but at the same time it's a challenge to continue to look for those partnerships and those resources that will help us answer those questions. When you're done with this job, whenever that is, what is your overall goal in terms of the evolution of the safety of the game as, as you go through your tenure as the league's chief medical officer? Yeah, I think we're, the, the, the place I'd like to see us be is where I see we are now with integration of the medical data with the football data, that we're making rule changes together based around that data, and that we look back and say, you know, we took advantage of the resources we had to innovate in a way that made sports safer across the board whether it's equipment, rules changes, style of play, coach education, player education, parent education, those are the things that I, I hope will become a permanent part of the landscape for us and, and that people will grow to see sports participation, again, as I mentioned before, in light of the fact that there are a lot of benefits 
to, to being part of a team sport and, and that we've really uh, done all we can to make the, the, the risk side as, as, as tolerable as possible. What's the most enjoyable part of the job? You know, I love interacting with all the smart people I get to talk to. I say one of the nice things about my job is people take my phone calls now. So um, <laughs> getting to take uh, or interact with our engineers, with some of the best scientists, the best medical people in the country. When I say people take the phone calls, the, the, everyone's eager to work together with the NFL because they recognize our commitment and our resources and our platform. So I love that synergy of bringing people together, sitting around a table and thinking about a problem like concussion and designing a strategy that, that we can then imply and, and see if it works. And then having all this evidence, because it's not just that we count injuries. We know the injuries. We know the game statistics. We know all the variables that go into the environment. We know the equipment. And now we've got incredible video, and we can link all that together in a way that really helps us to begin to dive into these issues in a much deeper way than we've ever been able to do before. Is the biggest surprise of the job the thoughtfulness of the tough guys, the players, the former players, the coaches, and the like? I don't think that was a surprise because I've been around athletes for a long, long time, and, and I have great appreciation for them. So, so that piece wasn't a surprise. But I, I've been um, gratified to see the tremendous collaboration we have with the Players Association and with everyone. We always say on health and safety, there's really no space between us, and we really look to, to work together. And so that's been a great part of the job. Great stuff. Dr. Alan Sills, the Chief Medical Officer of the National Football League. Thank you so much for taking time with us on the OTP. Thanks for having me. For Amy Wells, I'm Mike Keith. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time on the official Titans podcast.